Hey, welcome everybody to the Culture of Life podcast from First Fisherman Media. My name is Andrew Jacoby, and I'm here with Professor Alan Stokel, um, who is a, a, liter a, a comparative French literature and language professor emeritus from Professor Priest Clerk. Correct me if I'm wrong. French and comparative literature. French and comparative literature beasts. professor emeritus <laughs> or em emeritus, <laughs> whatever. Depending upon how you want to say it. Retired from yeah, retired from Penn State and Father Hyacinth Cordell, um, uh, from the Order of Preachers here. And the idea here for this uh, podcast is uh, I'm actually trying to get Father Hyacinth to agree to do his own podcast. Um, called the Dominican Option. So this is a test. This is under the Culture of Life brand. <laughs> so Father Hyacinth will decide um, in God's, with God's help to uh, either decide to do this and then we'll break it off on its own. But in the short term, the idea of the podcast, gentlemen, was that the Order of Preachers was started in the early 1200s by, um, by St. Dominic. And it was a conversation that occurred between a man who was an Albigensian, which was a, a late form of Gnosticism in the 1200s, and St. Dominic. And at the end of that conversation, through the grace of God, the gentleman came back to the church, and that was where the Dominican order, which is what Father Hyacinth is a part of, um, was born. And so the idea of this podcast series is that we are going to do the best that we can to recapitulate that conversation to sort of, um, Professor Stokel is a, a baptized Catholic, but someone who has gone away from the faith, uh, what we call a lapsed Catholic. Lapsed. So we'd like to f <laughs> sort of find out a little bit about your journey, why that was, oh. and what questions came up for you about the church, and perhaps Father could could serve to answer some of those questions. And I'm just here to be a fly on the wall. Okay. And, um, <laughs> so anyway, Father, would you like to maybe start? Sure. I, well, I can just introduce myself. Um, so I'm Father Hyacinth Cordell. I'm the, the pastor here at St. Patrick Church in Philadelphia. Uh, we Dominicans moved in and took over the spiritual care of the parish in 2018. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been a joy being here in this really unique city and uh, a really unique neighborhood. Um, I'm from suburban Chicago, not too far away from where you're from. And so grew up in the Midwest and uh, as I was, you know, we, as we were talking before, I had my own journey, grew up Catholic, um, wasn't given the best instruction, um, didn't know my faith very well. But and, and so I was headed away from the church for various reasons. I, we don't have time to get into that whole story, but slowly through various there were various things that kind of pulled me back. And I began then, uh, you know, at a certain point being open to the priesthood and kind of going in that direction um, believe it or not, fun fact, I'm actually a drummer and percussionist <laughs> and that's a great love of mine and still a little outlet for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have lots of loves. Um, and actually I, I would say, I'll just say this, that when I was younger and going through schooling, um, I didn't really see the point of it, the ultimate purpose of it. So I did fairly well in school, but I, I, in many ways, I just kind of got by and wasn't all that motivated. But once I had kind of an initial conversion, I say initial because we're all on this continual path of conversion. 100%. Mm. Um, and it never, it never, it's not like, oh, it's done. I just, I just, you know, I just finished my conversion. Um, it's a continuous thing. And, but 
everything for me changed. I began to look at everything differently. I actually became very interested in everything because now I saw like uh, that everything had an ultimate purpose and everything from sociology to, you know, physics, to astrophysics, to biology, everything was just so interesting to me mm-hmm. in light of um, kind of finding the purpose of life and faith and God. And um, so I love, I just love, sitting down and talking with people, uh, wherever, whatever their background is about these things and, and having these kinds of conversations. Um, and I, I, I always appreciate when people are fully open and honest, they don't feel like they have to, uh, uh, hide their true feelings or questions. Cause I think it's good to just have a friendly dialogue these days. 100%. It's, it's very a lot of, there's a lot of yelling at each other and not listening yeah. and, and not, yeah. um, you know, not having really serious rational conversations. So I think this is really important thing that we be able to sit down Mm -hmm. with, with the greatest respect and admiration, uh, listen well to each other, have a good conversation. And, um, so I, I, I'm, uh, I, I look forward to this opportunity. Great. Well, uh, to introduce myself, I'm I'm a little older. You were born in '78. I was born in '51. Okay. So, and I, my mother was, uh, I guess, a, a, a typical Catholic of the era. Uh, she attended church regularly, but never really got involved in parish affairs. Never volunteered, and apparently, this was typical for quite a few of the parishioners. My wife is also a, a lapsed Catholic, if you will, and she, she had exactly the same experience with her parents, which was that uh, they went to church, they put money in the collection plate, sent their kids to a parochial school, and that was it. Uh, and uh, the difference being my father proclaimed himself an atheist, so there was a little bit of a schism within my family between my mother and my father. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I went to a Catholic school, St. Agnes in Milwaukee, and this was the era before uh, Vatican II. So uh, we had the Baltimore Catechism, uh, which we were expected to memorize, and I still have a few bits and pieces. Uh, the uh, um, you know, we were trained to be, uh, the boys were trained to be altar boys, but it was all taken very seriously. I mean, the, the, the nuns made it clear that, uh, you know, certain rules were, we spent a lot of time thinking about mortal sin, things like that. And, uh, was which, there corporal punishment or corporal, corporal punishment? Pun- no, no, there no corporal punishment, but there was some, uh, uh, Sometimes it could get heavy if you thought a lot about mortal sin, and we, you know, were were kept conscious that you know one slip up could be a mortal sin. Mm-hmm. Luckily, there was confession, so you weren't lost forever. But uh, and then, uh, as time went on, we we moved, went to another parish, and I went to another school, a, a lay school. It was a private school. So then I took uh, uh, catechism classes on Sunday, and that was just when Vatican II hit in the early '60s. And the tone changed completely. Uh, suddenly, it was we were thinking about uh, uh, John Howard Griffin, black like me, uh, civil rights issues, and so on, and all the talk of mortal sin, uh, uh, walking with your head up and your eyes down as you prepared for First Communion. All that seemed to be completely forgotten. Uh, fish was no longer required on Friday. And uh, there was a general feeling that, uh, uh, on my part, that... Uh, uh, the church had lost its rigor for for good or ill, and uh, there was no, uh, okay. So I'll leave it at that. And at that point, my faith started to drift away. Probably around the sixth grade, uh, when uh, you know the call of the secular became stronger and stronger, 
and uh, the nature of the church, the pull of the church seemed to be uh, much weaker. I remember fervently believing around the period of my first communion uh, and, uh, and confession as well, and then it slowly drifted away. Uh, so, and that I became essentially what I still am <laughs> to this day, which is a lapsed Catholic. As we were saying, a lapsed Catholic is not the same as a simple unbeliever. Uh, one is formed completely by uh, one's education, uh, and I still take uh, issues uh, concerning, for example, the existence of God, or if you will, the death of God, very, very seriously. It's not as if I suddenly sloughed it off and, oh, well, it doesn't exist, so what? I've, I've had conversations with friends who are simply atheists, and I remember a friend of mine who's a very smart guy. He was an economist with the uh, Defense Department in Washington. He said, oh, I'm an atheist. Nothing, when you die, nothing happens. Uh, you, you just cease existing. And I said, great, how do you know? <laughs> how can you be any more sure of that than the old version, which is you're either in paradise really, really happy or in hell really, really unhappy? How do you know? Oh, well, whatever. So there's even faith involved in, in atheism. That's the irony, of course. Um, now, after I graduated, I, I did graduate work, and uh, very much a la mode when I was in grad school in the late 70s were French thinkers of the ilk of uh, Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, and so on. And these are thinkers who were very heavily influenced by Nietzsche. And so that issue of the death of God was always floating around. You took classes with one of them, didn't you? I, I, I was in Derrida's seminar in Paris at one point. Hmm. I, of course, I, everybody went to Foucault and Barthes and those people in Paris. But anyway... Uh, I started working my way back, and I started reading an earlier thinker named Georges Bataille. And Bataille's work is very much in the Nietzschean mode of the death of God, but he was a fervent Catholic before he moved into this death of God mode. So his work is very, very uh, strongly uh, affected, if you will, or uh, uh, I don't know what word to use here, uh, 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 full of the uh, sorts of questions having to do with the existence of God, the absence of God, the necessity of God, uh, and the problem of the absence of God. And, of course, that's an old question in the French tradition. I mean, uh, one of my other favorite authors is Pascal, of course. And Pascal, uh, in the 17th century already, realized that you can't prove to someone logically the existence of God. Uh, and uh, so his whole line of argument in the pensée is the, the thoughts, the, the book he's best known for, is how do I convince someone if I can't essentially use some kind of highfalutin logical argument? Those arguments have all been done. <laughs> you know, They've been done throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, they're more or less convincing, but generally by the 17th century, we don't consider them all that convincing. So he came up with this idea of the wager, and I'm sure you're familiar with this argument. Uh, essentially, what one does is simply wagers on the existence of God. Uh, but that raises as many problems as it solves. Uh, so anyway, that gives you a little bit of my background, which is um, still very much a Catholic, but lapsed. And maybe my whole academic career, which was sort of in French intellectual history, had to do with thinking about the absence of God. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe regretting it. I don't know. Uh, thinking about various consequences. Okay, that's um, that's really interesting. Thanks, thanks for that that background. Um, okay. And and I, what I find very interesting is you know you taking these these questions very seriously. Oh yeah. 
Because, you know, in, in my mind, uh, if people say they're atheists or they're not, they don't believe in God or they're agnostic or, you know, th- there there's there can be a lot going on there. It, it, some, for some, it could be very intellectual. Um, I find that for a lot, it's not like, like some something like Nietzsche, right? It could be very emotional. There mm. could be there could be um, there could be a, a lot going on there that's not necessarily intellectual reasons. Um, the um, the way I I kind of think about things, you know, is is I, so our faith uh, is really has three foundations. And all three, th- all three of these things, they each build on one another, and e- all three have to be true in order for the Catholic faith to be justified. And if one, just one of them is not true, then it doesn't hold. And, mm. and that that wouldn't mean that there's nothing good in Catholicism, but they need to all be th- true. So the first would be God's existence and revelation. Mm-hmm. The second would be uh, that God became one of us in Christ and everything that follows from that, right? He, uh, he taught, he healed, he suffered, he died, he rose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the third would be the authority of the church given to, um, given by Jesus to sort of entrusted to Peter in a special way, but really um, a certain authority and protection of what he taught that would be passed down through the ages. And so in my mind, uh, when talking with people, I try to troubleshoot a little bit, like see where they are. Because some people believe in God, but they don't believe in Christ, right? Or some people believe in God, they believe in Christ, but they don't believe in the church, right? If, if they're from the Protestant tradition, for example. Um, the what, For the first foundation, I say I kind of combine it. it. You can almost say four foundations, but I combine a first two into, into one. When I said God exi- God's existence and revelation because you you do have as you know well um you have some people that believe that god exists but that he never revealed himself to the world the deists mm-hmm. right so they they conceive of god as this kind of great clockmaker who thought of this uh idea of a clock he designed it put it together uh so to speak he wound it up put it on a table and walked away right. um to me that doesn't make much sense though um uh, as we can talk about if you want or or if you're interested in other things but um so it's once if somebody comes to believe that god exists then if uh, there's a further step did god reveal himself or not is he just did he simply create the universe and then never spoke to the universe never acted in Mm -hmm. the universe Mm -hmm. and just that's the deist approach um, or did he actually, did he create the universe and then in addition reveal himself in some way, make himself known, um, you know, uh, so that, you know, for some reason, um, it's really, to me, it's, it's an atheistic position or more revelatory position. God revealing himself make a lot more sense than the deist position, uh-huh. which just to be seems to be out of character with God and and the whole idea of creating of universe because he doesn't benefit from the, the creation of the universe at all, being infinitely good and wise and all of that. And so for him to create the universe and never reveal why he created just seems to be not make any sense. And right. and and uh well, we could talk about that more if you're interested, but um, so I, I'm kind of curious, um, 
So in terms of, uh, so what, what are your own like, current thoughts in terms of God? Do you, do you think he exists? Or do you, do you have leanings? Or you're not sure? Uh, ooh, that's a hard one, isn't it? I, you know, for a, for a long time, I thought I was thinking along the lines of the death of God, which is that God, um, what we know of God is his absence, the space left behind that's a Nietzschean kind of position. So I suppose I had a kind of Nietzschean position on God that, that uh, it's not a question of simple atheism, uh, but rather there's, there's actually a void there around which everything is, else is structured. It's kind of a paradoxical position. Uh, and I guess I was influenced by the French thinkers I was reading along those lines. Uh, now I'm, I'm you know maybe drifting away a little bit from that. And I have been thinking, I mean, you know, in in the end, of course, we're reduced to semantics. And if God is uh, a principle of the creation of the universe, then one could uh, think of that. I mean, the big question, it seems to me, is if we're going to call some principle of the creation of the universe God, then is God anthropomorphic? Which is maybe getting back to the same point you had, which is why would God create the universe and then stay hidden? I mean, that's the great 17th century question, you know, le dieu caché, the hidden God. <laughs> Why would God do something like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, or uh, later, some of the 18th century thinkers, he's a prankster or he's evil. Uh, and I think St. Augustine already toyed with that idea that, that uh, uh, you could imagine uh, uh, God creating uh, a world in which there was evil in which case God himself was either a prankster or extremely cynical. And, of course, a lot of St. Augustine's arguments have to do with that question of the origin of evil. And uh, his point, of course, is that the origin of evil is in us. It's not coming from God. Anyway, that's another theological line. But to get back to, to this question of does God exist, uh, I was just uh, there was an interesting article in the New York Times recently about uh, the physics of black holes and the uh, and as a lay person i had trouble <laughs> lay in the scientific sense not the religious sense i am religious sense too i uh, the argument seemed to be that somehow the black hole was like a hologram and a hologram is the recording of data which is then projected somehow to create an image and the argument was that the black hole has a similar structure so there's some kind of inscription or encryption on the surface of the uh, of the the time space continuum which then projects some kind of existence so at that point uh, my reaction was well we're starting to speak in theological terms here <laughs> where the universe is essentially a projection of a code but then of course you get back to the next question code from where whose code right mm-hmm. just as in a hologram you would have a code which is uh, some registration of an earlier image which is then projected into space uh, you would have some kind of encryption on this space-time warp of some sort please I'm not a scientist so I don't but you really have to look at the article in 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 the times Uh, this then would project all of reality now you could take one line which would be the postmodern line and say well it's all a simulacrum right (laughs) it's all just a series of representations to infinity or you could take a more uh, religious perspective, which is that if there's an encryption, ultimately that encryption comes from somewhere. It doesn't just appear out of nowhere. And then you have the question of uh, encryption encryptor. Who 
or what was responsible for that encryption. Uh, so uh, that le led me back to thinking more about God. But uh, God's still with a, a certain ambiguity, though, because I, you're absolutely right, I think. It's that second point from God as a principle of creation or encryption, if you will, to God as specifically concerned with us on earth. That's a big leap to me. Uh, and to, to imagine a, uh, uh, an anthropomorphic God in that sense, uh, that's, to me, the biggest leap. I can imagine some principle by which the universe is created. I think it's a kind of act of arrogance on the part of an individual consciousness just to say, well, we understand it's all purely mechanical. You know, that's all there is. It's mechanical. That explains nothing. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it kind of begs the question, really. Um, but then to say there is a principle, and it's specifically anthropomorphic. It relates to us in a specific way. That's where I balk. So um, thanks for that uh, explanation. Um, so I'll share a little story. So years ago, uh, bef before I was ordained a priest, I had a hospital summer, and we were sort of with other sort of chaplains in training, you could say. And we had two Jewish student rabbis with us, and they were both from the Reformed tradition. Uh, one, there was a woman who, she was, she basically said, I'm not sure I believe, you know, she kind of questioned her own belief in God. Mm -hmm. And now that might strike us as kind of funny, you know, you, you're, you're training to be a rabbi, you're teaching, you're, you know, to teach people about God, you're not sure. But I guess that in the Reformed tradition, uh, that can be acceptable. In the Orthodox tradition, you know, that wouldn't be acceptable. Right. But it becomes pure humanism then. Right, right. If yeah. you say, I'm, I'm a rabbi, but I don't believe in God, then what you're you're engaged in this humanism, which right, is okay. Except, I mean, except that she leaned, she leaned towards belief in God. Okay. So Lean she's toward. like, it depends on the day. <laughs> hey, she, there I'm a Catholic. Yeah. Either you believe or you don't. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. um, Sorry. Because God either exists or doesn't. Right, right. They can't, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, but the interesting thing is, okay, once she leaned towards God, but then she made some interesting comment. She said, but I don't believe in a personal God. Okay. Um, if there is a God, right? And I, and I said, well, why? And she said, well, because I don't believe in a God who would judge us. Mm -hmm. So in her mind, this whole act of judging, and especially judging rationally, we would say, you know, like a yeah. not judging rightly, but judging rationally is something maybe she experienced from human beings. She didn't want to be in the deity. And, but she maybe thought of judging as inherently bad and, God can't be inherently bad, so he can't judge. And I said, well, without getting into the, you know, good judgment versus bad judgment, I, what I, I took a little bit of a different approach, and I said, well, your definition of, of a personal God, right, is, is kind of interesting to me. It's, it seems a little funny. I don't define, like, the way I think of a person is not, a person does judge, but that's not the defining characteristic of a person. I, I think more of someone who's able to know and love. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could say rationally, but I wasn't thinking all those. Yeah. Um, and I said, do you think, you know, if we think, if we, if we shift our definition or conception of a person to someone who knows and loves personally or rationally, mm -hmm. then is that something, do you think that God knows, does God know and love you? Mm -hmm. She thought for a second She's like, yeah, I think I think I can say that. I think I believe that. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that sounds like a personal God to me. 
<laughs> and so we didn't get to the judgment part, but it was to me it was interesting. And then she it kind of struck her that okay uh, maybe so there's been a you know a long historical debate on whether the ultimate principle, if there is one, uh, is personal or not. And so you know, especially in Eastern traditions uh, in many different religions, you have this you know it could be the Tao, it could be the um, the Brahmin, right? This, this idea of like an ultimate principle. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not something that in like in philosophical Taoism or, or, or in or Hinduism that you, you relate to, uh, you don't relate to the ultimate principle. It's just an abstract principle. It's an ideal. It's the way it's goodness. It's truth. Yeah. We don't relate to it. And the, what they would say is that, um, it's if you think of God in personal terms, you haven't gone deep enough, right? You're you're thinking on a on a much shallower level. You're anthropomorphizing okay. because your um, God is much. You know, you're basically projecting our own humanity and and limitations onto God, and because that's what you want. And but that's but that's very limited. Mm -hmm. God is greater than just our the, our the foibles of our humanity right so there's an instinct there but my argument against that mm -hmm. um is that uh it's it's i kind of see it as a false dichotomy between thinking of god as this ultimate perfection uh with that's not personal or personal that we can relate to but that has all these foibles mm -hmm. um there's actually a both and answer mm. And the reason that I would say that is, so if we believe that God exists and he's, and the definition of God is infinitely perfect, infinitely good, has all these attributes, so, right? Um, which means he has to have the perfection of all, every, every perfection we find on earth or in the, in the universe, God has to have, but in a preeminent way, in right. an infinite way. And so we find things that are stable, we think, find things that are good, we find things that are, uh, all kinds of beautiful qualities, right? Beauty, goodness, right? And we can say, well, these are reflections, finite reflections of what's infinite in God. Mm -hmm. But one of the things, uh, and of course, some things just exist, right? So they resemble God insofar as they just are. But then some things exist and are living. Um, and so they, they would sort of reflect God in a deeper way. Mm -hmm. Um some some living things have cognition, right? And so they're able to be aware of things outside of themselves. Yeah. And so th um, they're able to know and love in a sensible way and through their brains, right? And so we would say they reflect God, animals, right, in a deeper way than just rocks, even though rocks also resemble God in some way through their, their own beauty. Mm -hmm. And if we just, and with human beings, you have an, an added perfection. Now we're able to not only know and love on a sensible level, but on a more rational level and actually have personal relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what we, what we say is when that God must have this perfection, but in an infinitely greater way, if we were to say that God doesn't know and love, we would be implying that we have a perfection. He doesn't hmm. and that he's not infinitely perfect. Mm -hmm. So if this is one of the many perfections, knowing and loving that we find in the universe and on earth, in particular, then we have to say, well, God knows and loves also, but this is the, to satisfy the anthropomorphic concern, not on the, not in the way that we do, not with its limitations. Mm -hmm. 
because uh, we we our knowledge is imperfect, our love is imperfect. Um, so we have to kind of strip all that away, and it's hard for us to even conceive, right? All of this is is trying to understand God from from a distance, a long, far distance. Yeah. But we must say that if God exists, He must have all the perfections found in creation, in an infinite for lack of a better word, degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he must know and love, but in a way, not in a human way, but in a, in a way that's infinitely beyond us. Uh-huh. He's not not conscious. He's not mm-hmm. unconscious. He's He's got the perfection that we have, but just in an infinitely greater way. And I think what, what's so striking is, um, I remember I taking a religious religions of Asia class in college, and we were talking about Hinduism. And the, the professor was talking about the history in the history of Hinduism. You have these kind of back and forths, this back and forth between something that's very a lot of sacrifice and the gods, and something very relational. You have you know Ganesh and Krishna and 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 so on, and and you go to the temple and very concrete and and then but after a while, people are like. There's got to be something a little deeper than just that, that right? And so then they start, there are these movements that are very spiritualist kind of movements. They try to get away from sacrifice and the statues mm-hmm. and the sacrifice. Yes. And it becomes seeking this ultimate ideal. But it's often just abstract. And after a while, it, it's, it seems like it's, it's more satisfying in some ways than that very concrete form of religion. Right. But then after a while, it's like, this, this is a little too abstract. Yeah. And so it's a little too just detached and seeking this ultimate ideal. And then people want, okay, we need something to relate to. We need right. to go back right. and something where our bodies are involved too. Is So in my mind, what's really beautiful about our faith is we have like these things coming together. In the God of Israel, you have a God that's infinitely transcendent. He's not like the gods of other nations that it's like a soap opera in the sky, mm-hmm. right? You, it doesn't matter which nation you're talking about when you're looking at ancient paganism. If you read the stories of the gods, yeah. they get into affairs, they yeah. have you know fits. They, yeah. They're all these things that they have. They're like humans, but superhumans. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. but in yeah. the Jewish form, uh, notion of God, it brings together various concepts, um, but you have this God that's infinitely transcendent and infinitely good and infinitely wise, and yet someone who also loves us mm-hmm. and is personal. Right. And it's all that together, Yeah, which is striking. And then when you have the incarnation, you have the infinite God not changing into, becoming man, but not becoming a man in a sense of changing into a man or morphing into a man because uh, right. God can't change, but uniting to himself a human nature that can change. And so you have sort of the highest and the lowliest coming together and God expressing himself through our own humanity, uh, which is pretty amazing if it's yeah. true, which of course yeah. I believe. But but to me, that's um, if if you go just the abstract route, it's unsatisfying. Right. If you go too concrete and too relational, it can be unsatisfying too. So we need something where it all yeah. kind of comes together. Now that's... This is getting beyond whether God exists, or right? Like a step, right. but beyond that, yeah. But I don't know if that's in, if you find that interesting. Oh yeah, for sure. About. I think uh, certainly the uh, one of the great. If we think back to the period where the soap opera of the gods no longer worked, it was the early Christian period in, you know, Rome, Greece, and so on, three four hundred A.D. something like that, when Christianity first 
really uh, came to be the major religion. It was adopted by the Emperor Constantine and so on. And I think there was a tremendously significant moment there, even though I have a certain nostalgia and sympathy for paganism. Uh, nevertheless, uh, this principle that we are created in God's image, I think, was tremendously significant for the evolution of society. And uh, even though, of course, over the centuries it's been ignored as much as as respected, nevertheless, as a principle, it's the most fundamental principle. Yeah. The human life is sacred. I mean, that's really, I mean, if you think of back in the ancient period, that wasn't at all the case. I mean, it seems perfectly obvious today, human life is sacred. Uh, before that, I mean, the idea of going to a gladiatorial game and watching people kill each other just to have a laugh uh, is, is inconceivable today. Um, but once we've said that, then there's a problem, which is it requires belief in God. And if you can't believe in God, then you have something like modern humanism, which says, yes, life is sacred, but it's sacred on the basis of what? Well, it's sacred. It's sort of a tautology. Human right. life is sacred because it's sacred. Uh, whereas if you ground it in the existence of God, then obviously it has a larger significance. Right. And, and in that sense, if you, if you don't mind, I, I, this is like a big ethical question, right? And today, and I think you bring up a really good point. Because there's a question is, can ethics be grounded, you know, or is it just my opinion, your opinion, somebody else's opinion? Is, is, there, some, is there some objectivity to, to ethics? Can we, um, and for us, we always say yes. And we say the reason we don't, that relativism is wrong. The reason um, that ethics is objective is because we have real value. So as soon as you say that we have value, everything has value, right? Uh, the stars have value. The earth has value. Everything, animals have value. Humans, we would say, have a special value. Yeah. But as soon as you say that things have value, which you can't find that under a microscope, hmm. we kind of intuit, um, we have a sense of, but that's not something science is ever going to deliver to us. Yeah. And But it's that doesn't mean it's not true. It's just not discoverable through the scientific right. way of, of, sure. of, of you know, discovering things uh, or measuring things. So it's just as profoundly true. And so as soon as you say that anything has value, whether you realize it or not, you're committed to some sort of a, a grounding of, of objectivity of ethics because it's very simple. Once, if something has value, that means if I treat something according to the value that it has, I'm acting well. If I don't treat something according to the value that it has, then I'm not acting well. So, um, so all, all right, all right. There you have basically the way I like to frame it is or express it is that ethics is grounded in reality, and as long as you, as soon as you say attribute any value to anything, you're committed to some objectivity in ethics. Mm -hmm. Now we can get into a lot more details in terms of how much value do that things have. And so on, and, and natures of things, but yeah. But but what I think your point was. So in my mind, ethics is rooted in metaphysics. If it's not, if it's not rooted in reality, then it has no grounding and, mm -hmm. and it has no objectivity, has no basis. The, yeah. There we have no basis to say to anybody what this is right or this is wrong. But reality itself, the question is, where does that value come from? Is it? Does it just? Is it? Does it there? And, and we're just kind of, and then it, if it's just there, then it's just so tempting to say, we just 
um, basically projected value onto reality. Mm-hmm. It didn't really come from anywhere. Yeah. But this is where, with belief in God, then God ultimately roots ethics because divine goodness is the source of the goodness in the world. Mm-hmm. And so you all now you have an ultimate grounding for ethics. Yeah, divine good. So it's in my mind, it's kind of like physics, where if you try to explain physics in terms of Newtonian physics, okay, you can explain a lot, but there are a lot of other unanswered questions. Newtonian right. physics needs to be grounded in something even deeper, right? You know, namely, uh, you know, uh, particle physics, and, yeah, yeah, quantum. And they're physics. still working on that. They haven't gotten right. to the end yet. <laughs> so in my mind, it, this is. Uh, this is a really good point that you bring up yeah, is yeah. Um, so you, you can have people that de- debate and say, and all agree that there's metaphysic, there's value in metaphysical value, which grounds ethical value. Yeah. But unless you, you won't have ultimate grounding of the metaphysical value unless it's grounded in God. Right. Um, and if it comes from God, then it, everything is grounded. Yeah. Metaphysical grounding yeah. uh, our value flows from the divine value that it, yeah. it's, bestowed with through creation and ethics flows from there. Right. Right. Yeah. I think that's, that's really the basic problem that, that this society or civilization is facing. Uh, because you're absolutely right. If, if there's not an, an, uh, uh, an absolute grounding for ethics, uh, then we're, we're completely adrift. Uh, on the other hand, uh, most people in society, were they to even think about it, would, feel this kind of radical separation between themselves and some kind of absolute divine principle or divine existence. And I think the comedian George Carlin kind of summed it up. Uh, and he was he had a Catholic background too. And uh, his great punchline was, what are religious wars about? Uh, my invisible man is better than your invisible man. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> this is the problem with, with God for a lot of people. Uh, God is absent. Uh, and uh, how do we uh, access, we can say, on, and this was the problem that Pascal was butting against, we can make arguments about uh, the necessity of the existence of God, uh, uh, the certainty of the existence of God, but without uh, some more profound experience, uh, we will either be cynical or indifferent or uh, so-called atheist, which is just being a kind of ego trip, really, where you think you know more than uh, than uh, the 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 scope of these larger issues. Now, now, of course, the other line is some form of experience, quote unquote, which would be commonly characterized as a mystical experience or something like this, where you would have personal direct access to God. Uh, that would be the other possibility. And frankly, I've always thought that the church was the Catholic Church was a little remiss in its attentiveness to. Uh, the possibility or even the necessity of, if not mystical experience, we'll leave that word aside, uh, some sort of contemplative practice. Uh, Now, I suppose you could say maybe prayer is precisely that contemplative practice. Uh, My grandmother used to say the rosary, and she could spend hours saying the rosary, and that was indeed a form of contemplative practice. Uh, You know, saying Hail Mary a hundred times, there's not really any uh, ideational content there, but it is a kind of contemplative movement, much like repeating a mantra or something like that. Uh, and one could argue it's that that gives a certain mode of access to uh, a larger divinity. 
uh, and different religions have different approaches, of course. If you go as far as Zen Buddhism, uh, they are loath to speak of any sort of divine principle, uh, and you start to have a kind of contemplation for its own sake. I, I'm sure the, the church would see that as being a, a, a dangerous deviation or something. I, I wouldn't want to go into that uh, or defend Zen or <laughs> these other but, forms of practice. But yeah. nevertheless, you see my point. Yeah. There is this question of... Uh, contemplation or some form of contemplation or meditation which would give access to some larger principle. But then when you get yeah, to that, then there's a problem as well because nowadays with mindfulness and so on, this practice is posed, or even Zen, without uh, a larger uh, divinity. So it can go off in that direction as well. Yeah, so I think... Um, so mindfulness, the way I... I, I kind of think of this is that um i've seen different types of mindfulness right there can be a there's actually uh there's a book called the mindful catholic mm-hmm. um that, that that's certainly an orthodox approach um trying to draw upon our tradition because we actually have a rich tradition in um in contemplation you see it starting with christ right he goes out you know hours before um the sun rises right and he spends hours in prayer alone in the wilderness and his disciples kind of noticed this and yeah and and you see that continuing on with uh in the tradition of the church with the um with the the saints and and fathers of the church and and so on and certainly some of the mystical saints are uh were responsible for for really powerful writings uh along these lines sorry go on okay yeah um so uh yeah so there's a rich tradition and I think I think part of the problem has been that um that you have uh a lot of people experience and they're in being raised in the faith they didn't maybe have that experience of the with, with the contemplative tradition uh you know some it was just vocal prayer lots and lots of rosaries, lots of other devotions and things. And yeah. those have their place. Uh, so the catechism talks about the kind of three different types of prayer. There's vocal prayer, meditation, and contemplation. And so vocal prayer is, it's, it should all be a prayer for the heart, right? But vocal prayer is principally using words, mm-hmm. and that could be really helpful. Um, meditation is getting beyond words and especially using images, you know, reflecting over the life of Christ, reflecting over creation. Right. We can even reflect over our lives and God's providence and right. that, right? right? And then contemplation is going one step further. It's sort of getting beyond images and it's just being with God. It's uh, it's kind of sometimes described as, you know, sometimes lovers, they don't even say anything. They just look into each other's mm-hmm. eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's like this this mystical right. experience. And we have lots of great mystics in the, mm-hmm. the tradition, Um and so it is unfortunate that many people, their experience of the faith maybe was just cultural or just limited to vocal yeah. prayer. Yeah. And so it, it's it's really incumbent upon us to live the depth of the whole prayer, you know, the whole prayer tradition, um, and 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 also invite people to that. And you know, when I celebrate Mass, for example, one of the things I, I really try to do, the liturgy actually calls for this: little times of silence. Mm-hmm. Uh, are actually called for yeah. after the homily, after communion. Right. So sometimes people, you know, if, if priests are trying to just get through the Mass and they're thinking more about timing, the, you know, they realize people want to go and so on. Well, that's not everybody's itching to get out the door right away. But 
if you look at the instruction for the liturgy, it actually says there should be a little period of silence after receiving a Holy Communion. And it doesn't have to be like 10 minutes. I just usually give right. at least 30 seconds, maybe a minute. Mm-hmm. But when you all of a sudden, the music stops, and, and we're so used to moving on to the next thing, but there's this silence. Uh, I think that's really important to take the mystery in because what you've just received, the body and blood of Christ, is awesome. It should never be received in a you know perfunctory way, and then we just move on to the next thing. It's like when you encounter God, you every, you need to stop and like take it in. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's there needs to be a lot more of that. Whether, you know the way we celebrate Mass um, and or you know giving time for silence. Uh, adoration has become uh, the Blessed Sacrament has become more popular in the last few decades, and that's a great way of people just being with Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a famous story of St. John Vianney having a parishioner uh, in his parish in, 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 his, in France, and he would spend, you know, lots, I mean, hours there just praying in the church. And John Vianney just was kind of curious how he would respond. So he approached him one day and said, so when you pray, what do you do? And he just said, I just look at, he looks at me and I look at him. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was beautiful. Like there's this, you know, a simple lay devout man who just had this sense of uh, his kind of this this contemplative dimension to his life, and people are looking for that, and it, they need to see. It. And we feel we're much more fulfilled in life and um, and closer to God, obviously, when we live that dimension out, and we attract people more to it. If we fail on that regard, if we don't fully live out the riches of our faith and that depth, then we fail it to attract, and people are going to look for it elsewhere. Right. Right. Alan, right. I have a question. Um, you were saying that one of the reasons why you lapsed was this transition from the Baltimore Catechism pre-Vatican II time, where mm. there was a level of seriousness yeah. of the faith, yeah. and then afterwards, after Vatican II, is this similar? What we're we talking about here, where there's like a um, there was a lack th- that lack of seriousness also drained for you a kind of the effective experience of the faith? Because we're talking about mindfulness, we're talking about an effective experience of God. But to a certain extent, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, either Maybe not so much effective, but the gravity of it. Uh, I think that the pre-Vatican II uh, Catholicism erred in the direction, I think what you're indicating there, uh, there wasn't enough attention paid to uh, the nature of the uh, uh rapport that one had with God it was more a kind of authoritarian thing God is always watching you God will know when you've committed a sin Uh, there's mortal sin and you'll go to hell forever if you commit it and those were the primary concerns really so you really need to go to mass every Sunday you really go to confession Uh, of course communion is central but without a larger kind of logic it was primarily punitive really was and uh, once that had kind of run its course with Vatican II then that was lifted but there was nothing really put in its place if there had been I think a lot of people would have been much more receptive to uh, if the church had sort of taken its foot off the gas pedal and said okay it's not so much about punitive but it is about necessarily a relation with God uh, it's not simply going through the form but it's more than just you know hauling yourself to mass yet again but now we're going to have 
uh, folk mass instead of the organ. <laughs> you know, we'll have a guitar instead of the organ. And isn't that better? Because now you can just kind of kick back and enjoy the bad folk music. I mean, that really <laughs> wasn't enough. Uh, there needed to be more of an emphasis. And obviously, a, a lot of people, by the time the 60s sort of, when I'm obviously a child of the 60s, by the time the 60s sort of wound down to the end there, a lot of people were uh, asking about some kind of uh, contemplative spiritual experience, which would have been linked, obviously, to a communal or collective experience. And uh, what you saw with things like Woodstock and so on, these obvious examples, are uh, manifestations, I think, of an enormous sort of uh, spiritual demand on the part of a lot of young people in that period uh, for something like a larger uh, contemplative existence in uh, a larger social communion. And if you think of something, again, a trivial example, but Woodstock, I mean, the music, in a sense, was especially the more hypnotic kind of music, and nobody was really listening for the words. The kind of hypnotic uh, uh, experience of listening is almost a kind of sad approximation of a kind of uh, contemplative uh, uh, event with God, if you will, or with whatever. And then, of course, the desire to be among others uh, it isn't simply an individual. It isn't simply an individual experience of, of meditation or contemplation, but it's necessarily social. So there's a very strong tendency in that period, and then of course when it all f it all fizzled fairly quickly, uh, and we had the uh, uh, the sort of the mass cyn uh, cynicism of the 1970s, or another version would, would been the fragmentation. All of a sudden, people started thinking not in terms of a collectivity, but then it was. Gay rights, women's rights, mm. uh, African American rights—all of which are good. I'm not cri criticizing that tendency at all to 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 affirm the rights of these individual groups, but it tended to be, and this is the case, I think, even today, thinking in terms of separate or individual groups rather than of a larger uh, community or a larger church, if you will. So I think that was a little bit what happened in that period. I'm wondering if I could just r run off for a second. Sure, to, sure. You can edit this, can't you? Uh, no, there won't be any editing. But we'll take we'll okay. take a break. Father and I will process. And okay, <laughs> we'll take a break. We'll okay, I'll be back. Yeah, no, no, take your time. Sorry, it's my seventy-year-old bladder. <laughs> sure. Okay. So um, we'll so then what we'll do is we'll start the uh, recording on the other side. Sorry. Great. Uh, no problem. So we're back um, for the last uh, let's say ten or fifteen minutes here, and I I had a question. Um, Actually, if if you don't sure, mind, sure, I just sure, have cool. a a comment on. Um, what you said, I think, yeah, what happened, I think uh, there was this pendulum swing after Vatican II, and it wasn't because people argue about the Vatican II a lot, right? And what what Pope Benedict has talked about is there needs to be a principle of continuity, you know, because you have some, you know, more leaning right that will say uh, everything before Vatican II was great, everything after Vatican II was bad. Liberal will do the opposite. Everything before Vatican II is bad. Everything after what's good. Um, whereas is, it is that dichotomy, isn't it? Which is a very foolish dichotomy, right? I think. Right, know? and that's yeah. Benedict was trying to 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 be. Let's get more nuanced, you know, mm -hmm. and and realize that there were there good things and things that fell short in both, you know, in both periods. They're dealing, but there was a kind of pendulum swing, and it wasn't. Vatican's two documents are very wise and well measured, and really striking a balance, and, mm -hmm. and have very high ideals for the, mm -hmm. the church living out 
um, her own identity mm. in the modern world and, and getting to some of these very points that you're talking about. Yeah. But it was also the era of the 60s and that very much influenced. And there was, we, we, we don't have to get into all of the details there, but I, I think people can all readily acknowledge there was this big pendulum swing and it went, the way I think about the spiritual life is, you know, the goal, say, if, if we take analogy of a garden, right, what's the goal of a garden? Well, it's to have a flourishing garden. And so there's a lot of, there are a lot of positive things to do to foster, cultivate that that garden. Mm-hmm. You have to put, deal with weeds as well. So that's part of like what you need to do to have a flourishing garden. If, if, you, if you just ignore the weeds, they're going to grow up and kind of take over. But the point of it, the point of having a garden is not to uproot weeds, right? That's the means, but the goal is ultimately positive. And ultimately, you know, what our faith teaches is what we're, we're ultimately made for God mm. and to be united with him uh, in this life. And, and we kind of stumble along in this life, but we're called to, to grow closer and closer to him and to grow in love of God and neighbor yeah. in this life that's a process and to come to eternal union with him. And that's something ultimately positive. Part of that is salvation then is being saved from the negative, um, which is sin, suffering and death in different, you know, different forms. Mm-hmm. But, um, so that is an essential part. That's like uprooting the weeds that the Lord has to do for us. But, um, so it, you know, on the one hand, there, there could be a couple of errors there, right? Where you just, the, you focus too much on the weeds, yeah. uprooting the weeds. Yeah. And you're like, okay, you have a point. There are weeds here. We <laughs> yeah. need to uproot those. Sure. But you can, we can overemphasize that and lose sight of the ultimate goal and posit- and and what the positive virtues that we're called to. On the other hand, sometimes we can be, try to be so positive in, ult- in reaction of being overly negative. We just yeah. uh, swing over to the other extreme that we just think, oh, there are no more weeds, everything's good, and, and then we wind up kind of uh, Pollyannish. Um, and so I think ultimately the ideals, both before and after the council, were balanced, but it's yeah. the, the, how, that doesn't always translate down on yeah. people's experience and all levels of the church and so yeah. on, but that's kind yeah. of what we're dealing with. So. Yeah. Yeah, part of the, the, the paradox is that uh, uh, if, if you read... Uh, uh, you know, secular media, say the New York Times opinion and so on, it's always that the church is somehow out of touch with its parishioners. Uh, That always strikes me as problematic because there's no law that says the church is not a democratic institution. There's no law that says that it has to be in touch with its parishioners. It needs to respond to their spiritual needs, obviously, Mm -hmm. but that's not quite the same thing as registering their opinion this year on whatever it might be. Right. And well, and, and people that lean left, they're going to criticize the tendencies that lean, lean right, mm-hmm. but they generally will not criticize their own, you know, uh, their own biases. Right. And it could go the other way as well. Right. People that lean right, sometimes they don't look at their own faults. They're just criticizing the people on the left. Right. But so the New York Times, the media, establishment media in general, is leans left. There's no question right. about it. And right. they're, they're criticizing from a certain perspective, but not looking. They're only looking at certain angles, and it's very yeah. biased, unfortunately. And it always strikes me as very ironic because they're not really believers, and yet they're criticizing the church for not being up to some standard, right. which is 
their standard, which is obviously a secular standard, it's right. not <laughs> not a uh, a religiously uh, let's say informed standard. Right. So it it kind of is a a, a circular thing. Yeah. Oh, Andrew, I, yeah, I had a question. No, yeah. I, I appreciate the um, discussion, and I wanted the what came up in my mind was that I wondered if you found a parish community somewhere in Philadelphia in the archdiocese hmm. that struck this balance between sort of reverence for tradition but not going too far yeah. into the pulling yeah. of weeds, right? So not too much <laughs> into the sort of sin, yeah. but not all the way to, yeah. you know, guitar, folk guitar, like somewhere right. in the middle. Yeah. Oh. Would that would you be called to rejoin that parish? Or are there other is there is there another question where you're saying, okay, it's not it's there's something else that's holding me back from rejoining, from finding a church and going there and going there and yeah. and sort of jo- rejoining the fold in a more full way. Well, I'm still having a stumbling block of the sort that Pascal indicated, I think, negatively rather than positively. In other words, for him, it wasn't a problem, but it could seem to be a problem. I mean, if uh, he has a point where he said uh, at the end of his argument about the wager, he said, well... How do you get people to to uh, to believe then once they make the wager? Because the wager is purely a, a, a self-interested kind of thing. I have everything. I have infinity to gain and nothing to lose. It's a pragmatic if, thing, right? If I believe in God, uh, but then the problem. So naturally, one makes the wager and one becomes Christian, or in his case, Catholic. But then the, there's another stumbling block, which is how do you believe? And in Pascal, of course, these were notes that were only, he never actually wrote, the, finished the book, and they're just little scribblings that were later published as his pensée. He says, well, then there's the sign of the cross, the holy water, go through the motions and you will believe. And that to me is, is the stumbling block. And for Pascal, it obviously wasn't. He was able to go from there to really rather intense kind of contemplative experiences. He, his moment of decisive belief was actually not just going through the motions. It was uh, a night of fire, as he described it, uh, in which he had a kind of contemplative vision of God, which I'm sure was very real. Uh, but then how do you get from going through the motions to the other? Now, I mm-hmm. suppose you could say, I mean... In a way, there's something very Catholic about that. Just say the rosary over and over again, and you will believe. Uh, it is that contemplative uh, act. Uh, it's not a series of rational considerations that lead to belief. Uh, but I'm still having trouble making that jump from the uh, the uh, uh, problem of believing uh, in a purely on an on an intellectual level in a purely good being, right? what you described there, the perfection of God. Uh, I'm having trouble conceiving that. Uh, maybe I'm still too much of a postmodernist. I don't know. But, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that there is such a thing as entropy, the movement of time, uh, makes it hard for me to even conceive of something that would be perfect. In other words, call it God or anything else, but something that would never change would be there uh, as a principle and also an agent of uh, perfection throughout the universe, I would have trouble believing in that. Um, and now maybe uh, it would be possible, but and I have trouble believing in Pascal's method, <laughs> and I don't quite know of any other methods that would get me there. Uh, so that's all I can say at this point. That's great. Um, so I think um, you know, we, we talk about John Paul II talks about faith and reason 
is kind of two wings of the bird by which the bird ascends to the heights of truth. Yeah. And, you know, we can, in, in our, from our perspective, you can kind of get off in two ways. There's both fideism and rationalism. So rational, rationalism, obviously, is, is just trying to discover truth through reason alone and not letting faith right. guide. Um, now, if, if God did, does not exist and he never revealed himself, then faith is not a, an open door. It's only, we're only left with one door to the truth, and that's reason. But if God exists and he revealed himself, then faith then— and we can talk. There are a lot of misunderstandings I think people have about faith. Um, but but if God exists and he revealed himself, then faith all of a sudden is a possibility and, and an avenue to truth. And right. if, um, fideism is also another kind of problem where people, uh, for the sake of clinging to faith, become fundamentalistic and throughout reason and become unreasonable. Uh-huh. And so... That, but we've always maintained that faith and reason have this great dignity. Faith is greater than reason, but we wouldn't say faith is irrational, but super irrational. Yeah. And so it's, um, but those are sort of our lights, our guides uh, to to the to the truth, right? And different levels, different dimensions, and ultimately leading to God. But. And so I think in each, each person's journey, that's, it's, it's, it's okay to, you know, I think it's, uh, it's a good thing to have doubts, questions, and, mm-hmm. as long as one's pursuing the truth and, and to engage those and say, okay, how can this be true? Let's talk more about philosophy and theology and see if, if mm-hmm. some of these things could be answered. Yeah. At the same time, there is this dimension of faith where it, it's, God's grace works in a mysterious way in each person's life. Um, and I always think of the, the Star of the Magi as a great symbol or image of faith because it's a dim light. It's kind of leading the Magi through the darkness, leading them to the face of Christ. But it's not this like bright, overpowering light that makes everything you know instantly clear. Mm-hmm. It's a dim light. It's just sufficient. It's kind of hidden, d- dim underneath the surface, that it's there, it's kind of this assurance yeah. that he's that God is real, He loves us, that the Lord is, the Lord Jesus is real and rose from the dead and is with us, um, and guides us through His church and all of that. But it's not something. There's a, there's always going to be a little bit of fogginess to it in this life. You know, we we say that in, ne- in the next life, faith will be turned into vision. But it's a powerful thing. But it, but there is this kind of fogginess to it, and it's okay. So we don't want to fall into rationalism in our pursuit and say, I have to prove everything first before I come to faith. Mm-hmm. On this, At the same time, I think it's good to engage reason and not to be afraid of... Yeah. I think we Catholics, we should love science, everything that science reveals, and we should be fascinated by it. That's mm-hmm. my That's been my experience. And now for some people, when it comes to the concrete, God just touches them in different li- ways. And I've talked with some people where we've, had lengthy conversations. None of that, like, you know, produced uh, a, like a, an experience. But then all of a sudden, it could be a slow process back for somebody. Mm-hmm. Or some, and or some people, I asked somebody um, who came back to the church more in re, about a year ago or so, and I just said, "Well, what what brought you back?" And all he said was, was praying the rosary. Uh huh. 
Well, that's that it. it. That's the problem is that and the God's God, God's grace yes. worked through that. It right. was it wasn't just the 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 motion going through the motions of the ritual. It was like God's grace was working through that. And somehow right. that was like right. a re reignition of His faith. Right through maybe the contemplative moment, if we want to call it that, for want of a better term. Yeah, the problem for me is that movement from reason to faith. That's where I have the, the blockage, if you will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm certainly happy to recognize the necessity of faith, and I realize that, that reason is insufficient. Uh, I'm not sure how that movement, how the, there is faith and how it's going to draw me toward God. I guess that's the problem. And so it's not just a question of intellectual doubt. There is a lot of intellectual doubt, though, as I was saying. The, the, the question I have about uh, perfection is, would be one of them. But one has to be able, and I guess this is what Pascal was getting at. You have to get past the uh, reason and the, the critical function of reason and move toward faith. And he yeah. did indicate that, that uh, it involves, to a certain extent, ritual. Uh, which is very interesting. Uh, yeah. And Pascal was, you know, I've never read the Ponces. Uh, the, yeah. I know he was a genius. Um, he was a math genius, yeah. He was a math, yeah. mathematicians yeah. talk about yeah. him all the time, sure. um, that they know their history and, and have this great admiration. And philosophically, he's very interesting. He has this faith. Um, yeah. he, I, think, I think it's fair to say he might have leaned a little bit not, not he wasn't a fundamentalist, but made it leaned a little bit in the fideistic direction, uh, even as he's trying to rest, wrestle with all of this. And I hope I'm accurate there. Yeah, I think what's um, the the modern, especially the modern problem of cognition and doubt and how do I know that 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 you know, really kind of started with, you could say, with Descartes and following. Mm-hmm. Um, in my mind, uh, a lot of this can be resolved or helped by a, the right approach. And I think that's where we Dominicans have St. Thomas Aquinas in our tradition. Oh. And even though he's from the 1200s, a lot of people might just, uh, a lot of philosopher philosophy departments and other people kind of are dismissive of Aquinas and Aristotle, you know, mm. going back before mm. then. Um, but don't realize how ingenious they were and balanced. And in my mind, an, a, a Thomistic approach that's very compatible with appreciating all the best of modern science mm-hmm. can really help guide us in the kind of right balance of faith and reason. So we're not left to, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to get to that point where I'm just leap in the dark and I just believe against my intellect. And ah. I just, I just will it. I simply just will it. Yeah. So that's, um, or just based on chances or probabilities, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. on the other hand, it's not to fall into the rationalistic where I have to, you know, some people it's like they're open, they, they, but you can go over all of these things in terms of reason and arguments for God's existence. Um, and I would say they're, you know, we believe that they're actually more compelling than a lot of people give credit for, Mm -hmm. but, um, those can help, I think. They can be an aid. Yeah. Uh, we we describe um, you know theology as faith seeking understanding, um, but t- to us it's like there's this interplay between both. You know, being open to the grace of God, right? Believing, having faith, receiving that light, yeah. um, saying yes to God's invitation and grace, which comes to us in mysterious ways. And for each person, it might be a little right. bit different. Right. Um, you know, there's a, there's this. 
initial installment through baptism, but it can it can wane and come back in various ways in somebody's life. Uh, but also engaging the reason, uh, you know, God, we are called to love God with all our mind, not only our all our heart, mm-hmm. but all our mind too. Yeah. And so, in coming to discover, for us, it's it's um, all of this faith and science go together. I always like pointing out, yeah, that it was a Catholic priest who first proposed the Big Bang theory. Uh-huh. A, lot of, a lot of people don't realize yeah. that Father, yeah. Father George Lemaitre. Uh huh. And you have a lot of you have a lot of Catholic thought out there these days that are like myself, you know, we're very much fascinating, fascinated by astrophysics and right. the big, big bang oh, cosmology. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like always wondering about this and totally fascinated. Yeah. And, um, father George Lemaitre is a great example of someone to read about uh, who had a deep belief in God, but very much respected the, the scientific method. Um, and wasn't, tr- was trying not to sort of, in, uh, he was trying to be, pro, you know, study study the universe in itself, hmm. right? Even though he believed it wasn't that there was a conflict, but he was he was not coming to his conclusions based on his faith. Uh, and even though these conclu- he had this confidence that all of this would be harm, har- you know, would harmonize. Yeah, but. Uh, people were skeptical at first, but eventually they saw he was right, and he was basing all of this was based on observation, and science, math. Sure. Um, sure. And so slowly, yeah. the more atheistic, agnostic yeah. uh, fellow scientists uh, began opening up to his idea, and now it's you know mm-hmm. the standard. Uh, I just think that's really neat that it was uh, actually a Catholic priest and Belgian physicist uh-huh. that just happened to initially propose yeah. the Big Bang, yeah. which people were initially skeptical about, which yeah. pointed to the be- a beginning of the universe. Although there are still a lot of questions about was that creation and so on. But right. to me, that's a great illustration of somebody who's a modern person whose faith is strong and yet very engaged in these really interesting right. Another figure who's very interesting, maybe a little bit heterodox, is uh, Teilhard de Chardin, who is an evolutionary biologist and and a priest, and uh, uh, had the theory that the evolution uh, was not uh, sort of a pure chance event, but it was the movement of development of intelligence. Uh, And there's a lot of scientific uh, uh, basis for that that has come up recently. There's a, a, a bio... A physicist uh, named uh, uh, Lynn Margulis, who's argue, who argues that uh, makes a similar argument that evolution is not simply a kind of pure chance uh, 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 development over time, and that it's no, purely it led to ch- human beings, right? So it's like sorry, a story. It led to humans. It led to right. a, a, that a in fact that, that uh, 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 evolution is directed by intelligence. That is, that uh, uh, intelligent uh, creatures have a better survival rate so that they are, in a sense, directing their own evolution uh, and that, uh, indeed, there could be many worlds with intelligence uh, developing so that there is that sort of intelligence and spiritual dimension that is an inevitable part of, of uh, evolution. Anyway, um, but yeah, I did... And actually, w- if I just mentioned, um, yeah. if I could mention, the uh, we Dominicans actually have a website called thomisticevolution.org. Uh-huh. In which we we have great interest in this as well, yeah. And trying to show the harmony between all of this, we could always maybe another discussion. We could yeah. open that part up. two, yeah. But yeah, 
Um, if I could also just mention maybe as a, a recap to um, in terms of good books on um, arguing for God's existence uh, today, there's Edward, Edward Fesser has a book called on the five proofs or the existence of God. It, it's not, they don't match up exactly to Aquinas's five proofs, uh-huh. but that might be worth very rigorous, might be worth checking mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. There's also Father Robert Spitzer, New Proofs for the Existence of God. He's coming from a more cosmological standpoint, mm-hmm. and it gets very detailed. Hmm. A lot of neat things there. Um, there's some others, too. The Last Superstition from Phaser is also really good about atheism. but Yeah, that's more sort of going against the new atheists. Right, right, right. right. But yeah. in terms of like really focusing on right, God on, on and his existence, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would recommend those other it's two. True. He's amazing. I love, he's, he really helped me out. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, as I think about it, I think that my objections tend to be more intellectual so that in a sense, I suppose you could say I'm still stuck in the demand for a rational explanation for the existence of God, Mm. which I've already sort of, along with Pascal, have uh, kind of uh, granted that it's it's pretty much impossible (laughs) so that I'm, I'm caught in a demand for a rational explanation for God, even while I recognize at the same time that it's impossible to, to really formulate one, that there is that element of faith that's necessary. Uh, you should, and you should is, check out, though, these, yeah. these, I think you might, um, I think you might be surprised by these books. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and also uh, Anthony Flew, who was a longtime atheist philosopher at the end of his life, uh, didn't fully come around to everything we believe, but uh-huh. he came to believe uh, in the existence of God, which is very interesting uh, at the end of his life. Um and based on he, you know, a lot of these kinds of considerations, but yeah, um, I, I I think you might yeah. profit or you sure. might find these books. Yeah, sure, helpful. we could have a, um, a round two if you gentlemen are are open to it. I also one thing you said, Professor, that was interesting, and then we might probably have to end the, the yeah. podcast. Is that you were talking about the um, principles of the natural world as being incompatible with God, sort of the entropic principle, for example, right? Right, right. And I, I, I thought I thought that was maybe a, a dis, maybe Father, correct me if there's a distinction between that's the created world. Mm-hmm. So the the principles of the created world are different than the created. There's a distinction between the creator and the created. Right, right. So right, the fact that things degrade in this world yeah. doesn't necessarily speak to a feature right. of God. Right. So that might be. Right. I don't know. If right. The, if right. I uh, I see what you're saying. Oh, absolutely. That assumes then that there is the Creator. I mean, that would be the 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 the, the right, first the, assumption that right. one as has. Right. started the, the yeah. podcast was yeah. really interesting. The three yeah. questions. The first one is what accounts for the fact that there's something rather than nothing. Right. The kind of thing right. that there is. Right. What right. could create right. such a thing? Right. Right. Um, and yeah. that's the that that is the. $64,000 question, isn't it? I, I mean, think Aqu- I, <laughs> to I put think a dollar value on it. Uh, yeah. Aquinas is, the, yeah. is much yeah. is a very, even though he yeah. wrote in the 1200s, is yeah. a, like an sure. amazing, sophisticated yeah. mind and argumentation yeah. for this. But anyway, um, why really is there appreci- something rather than nothing? Right. That's right. Uh, exactly. Yeah. That's the that's question one. Okay. That could be our next discussion. Yeah, well, our next on, discussion. on that small question, we can <laughs> call it a day. Thank you so much. Yeah. I really appreciate both thank of you. Thank you so much, Professor. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. You, it was really wonderful. Really thank you guys. Incredible. And uh, okay. hopefully we'll do part two, God sure, willing. Sure, sure. All right.